0: Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. I chat to badass people within mountain culture about how they got to where they are, peak experiences, hard lessons, and everything in between. The aim is to explore the way in which adventure sports help us find meaning and transformation in this crazy world. In this episode, I chat to Brian Hockenstein. Brian's the director of a film called The Radicals, a documentary following pro snowboarders whose love for the mountains turned them towards social and environmental activism. It, shed lights, it sheds light on a number of environmental and social issues facing communities in British Columbia, but also all of society in general. These, these problems aren't just uh, restricted to BC and we, we chat about that film as well as what drew him into the mountains and the journey from making these cool punk 90s snowboard films uh, into larger scale documentaries like this. Brian shares his take on peak experiences in the mountains, which if this is your first time listening, peak experiences are those moments of rapt attention where you're fully immersed In the moment, you're in flow and you're performing and feeling your very best. We talk about Brian's latest film project called Resilience, which explores accidents and tragedy that occurs in the back countries and the the lessons that we learn from it. Specifically, how confronting tragedy and our own mortality helps us make the most of this limited time that we have on Earth. we talk about that and a whole lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation. Brian is a such a good dude. So please enjoy this conversation too with Brian Hockenstein.
1: Awesome. I'm here with Brian
0: Hockenstein. Um to start things off, Brian, tell me tell me about how you first got into the mountains.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So first of all, thanks so much just for having me here, man. This has been, uh, this is a real honor, and uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, If not a little bit nervous, but uh, yeah, always good to meet good people who are interested in uh, some of the same kind of things I'm uh, interested in. So um, yeah, let's see how it goes. So uh, question was, how did I get into the mountains? Yeah. Was that it? Um, Great. So yeah, so I actually grew up in Montreal, English kid from the uh, suburbs of Montreal, and Grew up in a pretty solidly middle-class family, meaning you know we didn't have um, a ton. You know we weren't flying around the world doing all kinds of crazy stuff, but there was enough money in the family to kind of like you know we got to do one activity per season. You know one activity in the summer, one activity in the winter. And um, my parents were both pretty traditional kind of people, especially my dad and my old. I have two older brothers, and my oldest brother was super into hockey. That was his thing. And then kind of my it was lucky for me my second brother got into hockey but then he wasn't super into it so he had transitioned into skiing so by the time i came along my parents my per, you know they could see my personality i wasn't a team sports person per se so I was lucky in that my winter activity that kind of just fell on my lap was skiing. So I've been skiing since I was uh, six years old. Montreal is a great place to be a skier. Uh, within, you know, kind of 45 minutes to two hours, there's probably 30 different little ski hills. So, um, so yeah, so I was lucky in that, you know, I got hooked into one of these traveling ski school things where every Saturday they'd pick you up on a bus and take you to another little hill. And um, and that's kind of where it all started, yeah. Cool. And so, like, you're now a director,
0: like, Making a, a living out of of doing what you love, like how did it progress from like a Saturday hobby to taking like more and more of your your life and passion?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, making a living—that's definitely uh, subjective, but <laughs> but we'll, but we'll go with that. So um, so yeah. So again, so I've been I was skiing since I was six years old, um, and that was amazing. You know, it was a weekend thing through my like early childhood into my teenage years, and then you know I was born in 1980, so by the time I was uh 13 years old 1993 was kind of that first or maybe even really second but that first kind of really big boom wave of snowboarding that's when it kind of like really started blowing up so snowboarding came onto the radar and actually it was funny because that winter my parents had just bought me a new set of skis which you know again was maybe a little bit of a stretch for them but you know they'd buy us new gear every once in a while but you know we were definitely expected to make that gear last so they just bought me a brand new set of skis and boots and all that stuff and then sure enough I was out with some friends and I got I got to try snowboarding and instantly was just absolutely hooked. And of course, I need a snowboard. I need a snowboard. I'm like, dude, we just bought you these skis. So they said, you could try snowboarding. I had to pay for the snowboard and uh, I had a little bit of pocket change that I'd saved up. And then we had this deal where again, I was doing this weekend traveling ski school thing, but. I was able, or whatever it was, I, I was I was allowed to buy a snowboard, but I had to like ski half of the time still because they had bought me these skis. So I think I skied about four or five times that year, and then probably you know never really skied again. So so that was pretty funny. So um, so then snowboarding, you know, you're a teenager, and in the '90s, snowboarding was just so electric and so just so amazing. It instantly became my whole life um from 13 onwards Um, so all through high school you know it became my identity it became everything my friends all the rest i mean skateboarding in the summer snowboarding in the in the winters Um, and then and then towards my later teenage years 18 19 years old now we're you know this is all we were doing we were now we're driving so we're able to you know go up to the ski hills after school there's a lot of night skiing and that kind of thing in quebec which is really great so we'd go ski snowboarding i should say at night um but, you know, as different things happen, um, I wasn't necessarily as drawn or as skilled at the actual, like, jumps and the crazy the crazy feats in the snowboard parks, which barely existed at the time. But, but luckily, um, my brother, my older brother, who's a huge supporter of mine throughout my whole life and a huge mentor of mine, but he had a video camera for some reason that he wasn't using, and he said, here, take this video camera, and if you want to play with it, go play with it snowboard films and filmmaking is a huge part of the snowboard and ski culture. So I instantly just got behind the lens. And like I said, some of my friends were more into the tricks or whatever, which, you know, for one reason or another, wasn't necessarily my thing at the time. So I just started filming my friends. And then that just, that just got the ball rolling. And we started making these really, really kind of Garbagey snowboard films, but you know we modeled ourselves after a famous group of professional snowboarders from Quebec called the 418, um, which is the area code up in Quebec City. So we of course called ourselves the 514 crew, which is the area code in Montreal. We started making these snowboard movies, um, and then that was actually just the year, the year or two before we all moved to Whistler. I should say, you know, me and our group of snowboarder friends, we all moved to Whistler in 2000, basically as soon as we were all out of kind of high school and kind of free to go. And that kind of just got the ball rolling as far as filmmaking, yeah. Gotcha. Those videos are on YouTube, right? I think I found them. What's that? I think I found those videos (laughs) on a YouTube (laughs) channel. Well, funny enough, yeah, I just recently, uh, earlier this winter, was going through a bunch of old hard drives looking for footage for one thing or another, and I came across the old 5-on-4 videos. We ended up making four or five of them. Uh, Like I said, the first one would have been all filmed in Quebec, and then it was edited our first winter OS. and then we filmed them in Whistler the third second third and fourth and by the end of it we were snowmobiling and we were going in the backcountry and it progressed a bit but they weren't uh, nothing necessarily to write home about but uh, but yes but I recently found them and posted them on YouTube and amazingly enough all the music was definitely just like illegally ripped music but now YouTube actually makes it work so for the most part yeah the films are up there and uh, for better or worse, they're uh, they're out there.
0: They're cool, man. They got that like that like nineties like <laughs> snowboard movie vibe to it. Super nostalgic.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, you know, it's uh, it's part of our history and something that's you know. Uh, "Quote unquote," launched my whole career, so definitely no regrets or anything. They they are what they are. They're they're nothing special, but it's fun. And then especially just putting them online for kind of posterity, and especially for the guys in the films. Um, You know, now some of them are married and have kids and all the rest, so now they can you know look back and say, "Look at look at what we were doing almost twenty years ago now," which is pretty wild.
0: Uh Yeah. And and then so what was the leap? Uh, So how did you get from Montreal to moving out west? And then how did you you get from making these these 90s like punk snowboard films to to make mountain
1: yeah so absolutely so um so again so coming up through the 90s you know like i said i really stepped i actually stepped on a snowboard for the first time in 1988 but due to some bad luck and and an ill-trained uh snowboard instructor who i think was probably just a ski instructor he never actually checked i begged my parents let me try snowboarding in 1988 which they relented and let me but the snowboard instructor never actually checked if I was goofy or regular. So my board was set up wrong and actually blew my knee the first time I ever tried snowboarding in 1988, um, which scared me off it again until 1993. And then I think that's actually, like I was saying, where I was a little more hesitant on the jumps and that kind of stuff. So it kind of shaped the kind of snowboarder I became, so for better or worse. But you know, then in the mid to late 90s, snowboarding was my whole life, and the culture was really just electric. It was really like a punk rock alternative thing it was something you know when you're a teenager looking hook into something it was was something that was really really just quite amazing and all-encompassing the older we got just the more you know basically became our full identity and you know snowboarding was all about obviously snowboarding but then when you weren't snowboarding you're reading snowboard magazines and you're watching snowboard movies and everything we read saw consumed, thought about said whistler The path to snowboarding is Whistler. You have to go to Whistler. You have to move to Whistler. You have to live in Whistler. It's all in Whistler. Um, So that was it. So from an early age, we just, it's actually kind of crazy just to think about it. There was no, I don't remember having a discussion or there was no real thought process involved. As soon as we can move to Whistler, we're moving to Whistler. And that's what happened. I was so I was a little bit older, so I did like CJEP, which is like junior college in Quebec. And then I had to hang out for about six months of just kinda of drifting around and kind of pretending or, you know, letting my parents believe that I was like thinking to go to university. And then my other buddies, they had to graduate high school. And then as soon as we were ready, we just jumped on a plane and we just moved out west. It was um summer, August 27th, 2000 was the day I arrived in Whistler and it was, you know, it was summer into the fall, you know, everybody kind of took their time and we all just moved out to Whistler and, and that was the end of it. There was kind of no questions asked. Um, now once we were in Whistler and it was, you know, we figured out a way to get our snowboard passes and got our, you know, junky jobs on the mountain that would allow us to, you know, work the least amount of hours and do the whole, you know, six people to a bedroom or whatever thing in Whistler, you know, get as much time on the mountain. But then, again, everything the everything the magazines and the movies told us, back. first you got to get to Whistler, then you got to get into the Whistler backcountry. It was just all about getting to the backcountry. And again, you know, it's funny, like we were talking about, there's these things in life that you're so drawn to. And I don't even really remember having a real discussion about it, or even really thinking about why, why is it? It was just Whistler, backcountry, getting into the backcountry. So it was just anything we could do to get into the backcountry. First that meant hiking off the mountains, but then as soon as we could get snowmobiles. I remember even just sitting in Whistler my first winter and we'd see snowmobiles driving by. And we'd flag people down and we'd go, what are you doing, where do you go? I remember sort of like, black tusk, or this, or that. Remember, what, tell me more, tell me more, what do you gotta do? Get, get a snowmobile, get a snowmobile. So, you know, we worked you know, we worked and we saved our money off, uh, illicit and non listed things you do in Whistler in the uh, early 2000s. We saved up a bunch of money and we got on the snowmobiles and we got into the backcountry. And, um, and that kind of got that whole ball rolling. And then and then from there, I mean, again, we were making these, you know, kind of junky snowboard 514 movies, but, you know, that was only ever going to last so long. And for me, it was just, well, it was kind of twofold. One, it was you know what can i do to get into the mountains in the backcountry as much as possible um, and i was also really drawn to this idea of creating film but also for me actually at the beginning it was really i was really wanted to be a snowboard photographer in the 90s the snowboard photographer was really kind of like at least to me for one reason or another, it was kind of like the pinnacle of you know something to achieve So I just, I really wanted to be a photographer, a snowboard photographer. It was just, it was so magical, just this whole idea. And that was also when the whole digital revolution was coming. And I remember in the early 2000s, before the digital cameras had really hit their mark, um, I remember saying, I always had a film camera. My father was a photographer and gave me his film camera. And I was always really drawn to film and photography. But I remember saying specifically, as soon as these digital cameras are affordable enough and like good enough quality that it's a real thing, I'm going to buy a, Camera and I'm going to become a snowboard photographer, and um, and that was kind of the path, and that's what happened. In I think it was about 2005, I guess that Canon 20D came out, and it was you know sub $2,000. So for a couple thousand dollars, you could get a proper camera with some lenses that was you know quote unquote unpublic that was publishable quality, and um, and that was it. That was really it was just it was the thing. It was twofold. I was I was drawn to the artistic pursuit, but it was also just something that would Keep me going out into the backcountry as much as possible, and um, and yeah, it's just really an amazing thing.
0: Uh huh, uh
1: huh. And so
0: artistic pursuit, but also like keep you going out into the backcountry as as much as possible. It's like we we were talking about just before, like peak states and and that, like, you we now can put like names to it, like flow states of exactly what that that magic is. But like, could you talk a little bit more about like the the path of understanding what it was that was drawing you like into the back country
1: mm-hmm. well i just got like shivers up my spine because i i mean it's something that's so deeply important to me and something that's so it is my whole identity and everything i'm about but I, I, i'm curious to see if i can put this into words so so let's give it a shot so um so yeah like we were saying earlier i mean it's definitely one of those things that something that's been such a huge part of who i am for so long but really something i've only very recently even started to be able to put into words i mean so most of my experiences around this topic are unconscious um, things that i really didn't realize were what were happening um i mean going all the way back i was thinking about this i it's super funny i remember my first powder day um ever i think i was probably about seven or eight years old i mean i was a little child and i was on skis and we were at this little family ski hill um and you know with this one old double chair lift and it was a powder day and it snowed a whole lot of power i mean looking back who the hell knows what that what that was it was 10 20 30 or more but and i remember half of the mountain was groomed and half of the mountain wasn't groomed and i remember my brothers or stay off you know you, you guys should only go right i was with my cousin who was kind of my partner in crime at the time and you know you go, but of course we were drawn to left so we went left and we were just stuck in the powder and you know probably crying and i remember you know such a small hill that i remember my brother Going over the chair, like, what do I do? What do I do? And he goes, just lean back, just lean back. And you know, you know, who knows how that day really ended up. But it's it's so funny how these memories stick in your mind. I mean, we're talking, thirty, you know, over thirty years ago, right? but yeah, but then again, fast forward, you know, uh, again, so snowmobiles, snowmobiles. So we always just needed snowmobiles. And it was actually my one of my best friends, Josh, who managed to pull the feet off a little earlier than me, not by much. I, I had been saving that winter, but I still wasn't sure. And he'd gotten a snowmobile and he doubled me up. And I think, you know, it was, it was only his first or second time up, but I still remember we're doubling up the... Um, the cat track up Brandywine, which is a really you know popular uh, zone uh, just outside Whistler, and I don't think we had made it two minutes up up the track, and I remember just leaning over and going, "I'm buying a snowmobile tomorrow." And again, we hadn't even made it into the alpine, we hadn't even made it up into the the, the zone or whatever else. But I just knew instinctively that this is where I was meant to be, and this is inevitably where I was going to be spending a lot of time and a lot of my a lot of my money um for the rest of my life and um and that's a pretty special thing so yeah peak experiences i mean there's just something there's just something about being in these places and both what you know it's such a it's such a visceral and all-encompassing physical and mental and it's just such an all-encompassing thing that for many years we were just we're just doing the thing without it, even really registering, even really thinking, even really had the time to think about what was so special about it. But yeah, reflecting back on it. I mean, I mean, the beauty of these places is obviously, you know, the the main thing that always kind of keeps coming back to me. But yeah, it pushes you physically. It pushes you mentally. It pushes your friendships. It it drives kind of, it just kind of drives everything. And it's, it's such a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? <laughs>
0: uh, it, it does, it does for sure. I mean, keep very, probing Very me. loose answers to what? Yeah, what, what yeah we
1: absolutely. Do. As you can tell, I could talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> so feel free to keep asking the same question over and over, and I I'll, I'll give you different answers.
0: That, that, that like visceral aspect is like what stands out for me, and, and um, a lot of people talk about it uh, in 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 peak states. Like uh, Mihai, chicks, and Mihai and Jamie will talk about um the like embodied nature of it in that like you're getting like sensory data data is probably not even the the right word but like you you like your senses are like screaming at you from so many different different angles and um i guess like the image i'm thinking about is um like one that like when you're actually in the mountains the the beauty is is so much more than say like staring at it from let's say from the sea to sky gondola or, or or something like doing the work of of climbing or or the mission of like getting to the spot often makes it like so much more, more beautiful are you, are, are you a sufferer or are you do you just hit the the ski server it? It's like, it's like a sufferer. Uh, do you oh, really a sufferer. Like, do, you, do you like the climb or what are you really
1: Yeah, I'm definitely a type two fun kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so you know, to jump in on that, I mean, it, it's really quite true. It's, it, it's not just about the specific experience about standing on top of the mountain. Like you said, if you were to jump in a helicopter and just put yourself on top of that mountain and see that exact same view, it just wouldn't wouldn't do the same thing it's the work you put in it's the effort again it's sometimes it's years of dreaming and working and then some you know dirty kitchen and then it's the physical work and sharing it with people who you've built these lives with I mean it's everything that comes together and, and it's funny with winter and snowboarding and skiing and these things at the end of the day it's probably really I mean you know, on the best year or whatever, you know, you want to say 30 or 40, but it might actually only be 20 of these, you know, perfect bluebird days where everything actually comes together. So I mean, you're talking 20 days out of 365. It's, it's almost nothing. So it's, it's, but it's, it's, so it's all this work that you put in and it's just so all encompassing. It's uh, it's really quite amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is there uh, any like memories that stand out of um, like experiences where there was that long build up so let's say it's like a um, uh, a heli skiing trip that like had been in the planning for a long time or some expedition or something that like really stands out as is something where there was like so much build up to it that it made that experience that much more richer mhm
1: mhm mhm um, i mean i don't know if this was going to answer your question exactly but i know for me one of the yearly highlights is you know the first hut trip of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you spend, and I actually I make a conscious effort not to not to build up the hype too much. I always say the winter's gonna come. It comes every year. I'm not the kind of person who has to post on social media for months and months and months in advance. But but inevitably the stoke starts building, and you start getting pretty excited about that and. Um, as much as I am drawn to snowmobiles and that kind of stuff, another big part of, uh, of my love for the backcountry is foot-powered travel. And here we're uh, here in the Sea of Sky. we're very lucky in that we have a big network of, we'll call them official and unofficial huts out in the backcountry. So I have a, a really good group of friends who, you know, we owe it once a year. So sometimes it's November, sometimes it's December, hopefully not later. You know, we try to do one big hut trip every year or uh, to, to kick the year off. Um, and I won't mention any names of uh, specific spots or anything but but yeah I'm thinking of one really specific really just special trip um, where yeah it was just the beginning of the year we got that first big snowfall of the year and it was go time, and we headed out to the cabin. We had a couple of dogs, a bunch of friends, a um, bunch of food, and it actually just dumped and dumped and dumped the whole time. And every day, it was just a reset, a reset, and it was amazing. And by the end of it, you snowmobile to the cabin, and then you park your snowmobiles and, and tour for five days. Our snowmobiles were actually buried in snow. You have photos where you can't even see the um, see the handlebars. But yeah, I mean, it's just so special to be able to share these experiences with your best friends, and especially for me, the early season is where I get to spend the most time with my actual friends, because then projects and it's, it's it's changed over the years now um, career-wise or whatever. But often over the years, where I'd be working on other film productions for you know quote unquote bigger film companies. I mean a lot of the athletes who i was working with would become good friends but that wasn't my you know core group of friends that i grew up with they were nicely hanging out with all summer kind of thing so the beginning of the year was where i got to spend that really quality time with my you know best friends and just to be able to share those experiences and especially kicking off the winter like that it's uh it's a really magical thing
0: Mm -hmm. Mm so so far we've been talking about like the 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 stoke that is generated Mm -hmm from these from experience outdoors something that like stands out to me as well is uh, the the amount of learning mm. that that takes place specifically in the back country there's so much like experiential learning whether that's like uh, about yourself or whether that's uh, about the risks and, and just how like how powerful mother nature is what uh, in, in it can be formative it can be whenever um, are, like some of the 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 biggest, like, learnings or, or learning experiences that you've had in the backcountry?
1: Hmm, mm, another great question. Um, I'll try to dig into maybe some, like, specifics in a second, but before, before I even go there, I mean, again, it's more of this, like, you know, it's not going to be tied to one specific incident or anything, but, um, but yeah, just, like, the, the idea of, you know, learning who you are as a person and what you're capable of, physically and mentally and especially for me I've I've often I'm an active guy but I've often struggled with different health issues around my back and stuff like that so my fitness isn't always necessarily where it's at and you know I hang out with some real top athletes so it's just like pushing yourself and pushing yourself and I mean it sounds so cheesy and it's obviously what everybody says but it's like it's really quite an amazing thing where you think you're not going to make it somewhere there's no way you can make it but you're with your buddies and you got to get over the next hill there's there's no real choice about it you know and 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 then just and then making it because you inevitably always make it because there's no other choice. Um, So, you know, those kind of experiences over the years have been, you know, really not only just fulfilling in the moment, but those are the kind of things that then inevitably are going to impact the whole rest of your life. Um, You know, whether that's, you know, relationships or career or or another, you know, physical or mental challenge you experience out in in the rest of the world. Um, So that's really quite special. Um, And then... Yeah, maybe something more specific, and I mean, I guess we'll. I guess I, I feel like we're gonna dive into it a little deeper um, in a minute, but you know, and it's kind of definitely more of a recent thing, but you know, this, you know, dealing with tragedy in the backcountry and learning, both, how how you're gonna react, can't you know, are you gonna be able to react in a healthy way? Are you gonna be able to you know, move forward, move on, whatever terminology you want to use. And so in the last couple of years, and, you know, for better or worse, I've been involved in, you know, two tragedies um, here in the Worcester backcountry to, well, it's two and a half years ago now. I was working with Dave Treadway when he passed away in the backcountry. And that one was quite interesting because me and Dave were actually really new friends. We would actually, like, basically just met. Uh, you know, several weeks earlier. We had just started working together when he passed away. So that that was an interesting one. And then um, just in terms of like, yeah, again, just kind of like learning how you're going to react to a situation and then being fully immersed in the grieving process of this insanely huge community, everything from his family to his friends to his global network. It it was really quite amazing. Um, And, you know, I learned so much about myself and about just kind of life and about the process of grieving and the process of the idea of you know what is life and what is the meaning of life and being grateful and all that other kind of stuff and and then the other tragedy i was in you know that was i wasn't necessarily involved in i guess is the right word but good really my first really good friend um who passed away in the mountains just this past winter dave henkel um You know, and that was, like I said, that was kind of one of my first, my first really close friend. I mean, literally we were texting on the day that he passed. And yeah, again, just learning, you know, you, you, especially in your 20s and stuff, risk and death and these things, it's it's part of, it's part of what we do. And it's, it's always been discussed and especially when you're younger, you know, you kind of, yeah, yeah, it's there, it's there. And then you get older and people around you or, you know, you start, you start experiencing these types of things. In, the, in your outer community, and it starts getting closer and closer, but then you still always, you know, you always wonder, how how am I going to handle this thing? You know, is, you know, how am I going to handle it? So, um, so yeah, that was a really, it was a really big learning, learning process this winter and a huge growth experience. And in a lot of ways, a really positive experience, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird to say, but you know, and it's all the obvious things, you know, it does bring the crew closer together, it does, does make you ask these bigger questions, and luckily, or by coincidence, or whatever the word is, I was in the middle of working on a project with a group of guys and gals that were dealing with these issues, so by by sheer luck, I, I, we, had, we had set up a framework to deal with exactly these type of things when this second tragedy happened, so Um, so we had this incredible support network and you know people to talk to and support ourselves whether that was through talk and discussion or just a hug or just you want to go riding man or you know um, it was a really interesting process and it was it was beautiful to see everybody come together and support each other and um, and yeah there's there's a lot of growth and a lot of learning that comes out of these really tough experiences yeah yeah
0: something that like
1: I've observed is that
0: it seems that like in extreme sports by or, or adventure sports for that matter, having um, a closer relationship with death or being forced to actually contemplate death, like actually forces you to ask the questions on on like living a more meaningful life. Right. is that what you're you're pointing to when you talk about the positive sides of it or yeah 100%
1: 100 110% i mean yeah it's really quite quite a quite a gift um You know, I've been, you know, I've been moderately moderately blessed in my life. There's been a ton of tragedy in my family over the years, you know, through my uh, early childhood and middle childhood, I should say. Um, I lost my mom a couple years ago, and that was obviously a pretty formative experience and something that was, you know, difficult to go through. The circumstances of it were, you know, she was sick for many years, so we had a lot of time to prepare, and it was actually quite a beautiful ending to her story. Um, So there was that, but... Um, but yeah, but this idea of being part of an activity that does bring us closer to death and these questions, again, yeah, it's, it's it's quite a gift. It's when you're younger, I don't know if I'm finding the right words here, but yeah, when you're younger, it's something that you kind of acknowledge and I kind of like, yeah, yeah, it, it's part of it. But then as you get older and you inevitably start asking yourself these questions, um, you or I should say you would, you would inevitably start asking your, these questions anyways, and it's, it's more of a theoretical thing or a, you know philosophical thing maybe for a lot of people, but here we are involved in this community that inevitably is faced with these things every day or every year. Unfortunately, even here in Whistler, we're blessed with a very stable snowpack, so there's a lot less avalanche fatalities and everything else than maybe in some other places of the world. But inevitably, there's a death or two a year, and you know, so inevitably, it's going to end up being people that you're close with or are part of your community. And yeah, and it makes you ask these questions and it's it's a beautiful gift. It's it's a beautiful gift to have to face these questions. And then also to be surrounded by a community, or I should say, I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by a community of friends who aren't afraid to dig into these questions. And especially this past year, you know, by coincidence, we had set up this project to dive into these questions so we're already having these discussions and um i always laugh i always say my favorite part of getting older is all the kind of bullshit kind of just goes away in life i'm talking about more in general you know like yeah there's time to sit around and just kind of bs with your buddies but it's a beautiful thing of getting older is like you actually start talking about kind of the more deeper questions the more meaningful stuff you know when you're younger you kind of like laugh it off and kind of change the topic but i love these kind of these kind of discussions i don't personally come from a academic group of friends so you know we we weren't we weren't necessarily talking about these deeper questions so maybe it's different for other people but it does seem as we get older there's there's a lot more openness and willingness willingness to dig into these topics and for better or worse there's no there's not ever gonna be a bigger catalyst to dig into these deep topics than somebody dying a good friend dying doing the thing that you love so much that's given you so much that is again your whole identity and inevitably it forces you to ask these bigger questions it forces you to really dig in and um and that's something i'm grateful for yeah
0: um you, you mentioned earlier uh about uh having like a, not an expectation but a perception of of how you'd um how you'd react to to, to death versus actually happening um That makes me think of as like in your your 20s or or early 30s, did you have any um, like experiences that that forced you to think about that or was it always just like a distant, I'm in the back country, I know that's a, a risk?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, for better or worse. I mean, for better, I've been, I've personally been very blessed and I mean, this area we live in, we're a little bit luckier in that Um, I hadn't had a lot of incidents, um, in my life. They had always been very peripheral, uh, meaning, you know, maybe a friend of a friend of a friend or even less something you read about. Um, no, I really hadn't been faced with any real direct tragedy in my life, um, in the mountains until very recently. Um, really until, yeah, until Dave Treadway passed. Um, and that that was just, you know, not even three years ago. Um, You know, my personal life, again, very blessed. Um, You know, grandparents die and stuff when you're younger. But yeah, not until my mom passed away, which was 2018. Um, And even then, just in my friend's group outside of the mountains, we were really very lucky. And it it wasn't, it was only, uh, I'm going to bite my lip here, but, or um, maybe six, seven years ago, really, until we lost our first friend in a a car accident. and, um, And that was really my first time facing you know, that's close up in my adult life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this,
0: it, you've worked on a, a, a number of films, but the, this latest one, um, Resilience, is is really exploring that. And th- did you say you? There's kind of a framework being developed a, a, around um, that. Or we'll talk a little bit more about the film.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So. Like I said, so when Dave Treadway passed, we were actually just kind of new friends. We had kind of like circled each other's orbits for a couple of years. We had, you know, chatted online or on the phone or whatever else. And we were always, I don't know, there was something that drew us together. Um, and we were kind of like looking for a project to work on together. And we'd explored a couple of things, applied for a couple of grants, and nothing really happened. Um, I don't know. Uh, and then, and then, long story short, I guess, he had been working on a project that hadn't quite come to completion with the other filmmaker for one reason or another, and we had found an opportunity to basically finish up this project. And I was just kind of going to kind of jump in. We were going to film one or two last kind of scenes or section of this film, and we we're going to we we're going to wrap this film up together. Um, so um, so we had set out, and really, it was really uh, we we had gone out shooting one or two days, and then we had gone up again another time, and. Um, to shoot some big lines which and I mean that's that's how these things inevitably work. We had gone to shoot these like really big lines um, you know we were up on top of a mountain and sunrise in the dark and all the rest and there was a couple of red flags and Dave and his friends being who they were we pulled the plug. It, it wasn't the day to shoot those things so I'm back down to camp and um, and you know we're just kind of sitting around and uh, enjoying the day and when eh, why don't we go you know, shoot some pow and just kind of shoot some shoot some filler stuff or whatever, and, and, and that's when you know, passing in, you know, it, it, it was a pretty fluky accident. So, Resilience originally was, uh, the idea around the film was, it was really all about Dave passing and that experience. Um, because, again, that group of, the friends group and the family group, the way they processed and dealt with dave's passing especially dave's brothers who he's extremely close with um, his parents who they're extremely close with and then his wife tessa who at the time had two kids and was pregnant with their third and so now has three kids and the family specifically is um, quite uh, religious and faith-based and just watching them deal with this tragedy in a way that I mean, I hesitate to say a positive way because, of course, it's not a positive thing, but in such a beautiful, healthy, supportive way, it was one of the most impactful experiences of my life, and it was something that I knew I wanted to explore more. So, so that's where you know, and then you know, resilience has been has been a. Um, a bit of a buzzword for the last year or two, especially around the pandemic. So I must have you know, picked up on the word or you know, in some of my reading or learning there. And so that's where the idea of this film came together. And originally the film was really all just about Dave passing and spe- like really zooming in on that. And I pitched it actually to Tessa. Well, I just kind of asked Tessa kind of permission to explore it, which she offered. And then I pitched it to the Pembe crew and they said, and, and they were, they're great. And they said, this is awesome, let, let, let's do it. They said, let's just, let's be careful about being too heavy-handed, you know? We don't want to go and, you know, like basically everyone's just saying like, we don't know what the hell we're doing, you know? This is just, this is just, we're just going through life doing the best we can. So basically their messaging to me was, let's do it, but let's really be careful about the messaging we put out, meaning we don't want to be too heavy-handed and try to say that we have all the answers or that this is the way to do x y and z and so we kind of hit on this kind of scaled back um, story of basically this is a framework of going through life that we have found works for us and allows us to live a deep and meaningful life and also has given us this framework to deal with tragedy which inevitably is going to arise whether you're a mountain person you're losing people in the mountains or you know people die every day or it could be a pandemic or whatever else big or small trauma or tragedy befalls us. Yeah and and that's like
0: part of of this project is, is like the idea of uh, the lessons that you learn in the outdoors that that really translate to, to all other aspects of of, of life and uh, an example being like the the type two fun uh in in any adventure sport like just doing the thing that's hard or like being okay with discomfort uh applies can, can be applied to all these other different realms and i'm curious um if there's any like principles or, or, or ideas explored in the film, of what what you can learn, uh, or even just in your life, what you can learn from from the out, uh, the outdoors that, that applies to to life in general.
1: Hmm. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, it's such a big question. So so much stuff we can go into. So um, I mean, I think like we touched on it a little bit already, but yeah, just this idea of being okay with discomfort. And being able to not only be okay but to lean into it because you know that there's gonna be this amazing reward whether it's a insanely insane you know perfect power run or just that sense of accomplishment I mean there's you know that's such a lesson that you that you know that inevitably is gonna um, infiltrate into into all of life Um, now you know this idea of what is what is resilience and especially you know around this idea of discomfort or um, losing friends in the mountains. It's Joe who says it in the in the movie where you know, I think what you learn through these experiences is that this idea of resilience whether you want to put that word to it or not it's really it's not moving past a particular tragedy or trauma. It's not okay I've processed this and move on. I love what he says. He says you know, these scars that were given, they're scars, they're with you for life, but you they become part of you and you move on and you remember them and you remember your friends and and you move on and they just kind of become, become a part of you and it's not, you know, this idea of resilience is not something that is any sort of conscious decision or something, you know, that we even try to do it's um it's just kind of who we are yeah it's amazing
0: scars is like a good uh a good metaphor because it it, it there is like it, it's very it's very easy to to think just in life in general like you, you've overcome some particular trauma or piece of baggage you have and then um just keep coming up against it or almost being in denial that you've come up against it and and, and letting it It'd get the better of you and so viewing it as like a a scar that it's it's healed you've
1: overcome from it but it's still there and mm-hmm. still to, to manage it is a good metaphor yeah these things that happen to us they're um they're part of us they're part of us forever and um i mean there's really no choice in the matter i mean you have to keep moving forward um so you you deal with them you process them and again hopefully you have a good support network around you and, and you keep moving forward i mean i know for me you know there's always this question of you know uh, you know what you know w- would you ever give up you know would you ever give up this life or would you give up going into the mountains you know, how can you keep taking these risks um and you know it's, ne- it's never really been a question because it's such it's such a big part of you and uh, it's another great quote in the film but yeah, there's really no question around it. It's another great quote that Delaney says, it's like, if you gave up going into the mountains because you lost a friend in the mountains, you'd have just lost that friend even more. You would have lost a huge part of yourself even more. We honor our friends. We honor ourselves by continuing on. I mean, of course, within reason and you gotta, you know, put safety checks in place, but yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing. And at the end of the day, I mean the the benefits outweigh the risk at least for me i i don't speak for anybody else but these places we get to spend time in you know the mountains the back country, the you know the deep the deep mountains and these these incredible places i mean they just give give you so much it's it's really quite amazing it's mm-hmm. it's, it's really the most beautiful gift that i don't know what i've done to deserve
0: mhm mhm yeah, just the the act of like being grateful for it is so powerful, right? Mm. The the thing that I think about when you say that is um, that there, there's almost um, in any high risk sport, um, there's like a, you you do see in like high profile cases. Specifically, I think of of base jumping where um, where there's you, you can become an adventure junkie and um a certain level of risk no longer gives you the same Mm. adrenaline peak state and so you you, athletes take take higher and higher Mm. risks um i'm curious in like in your own uh decisions you make around risk but also observing athletes like what goes into to assessing like the, the risks and, and making a call on uh, on on what's worth it. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's obviously a huge part of what we do, and um, and something that you know we all think about quite a lot. I mean, so I guess it's two parts. So talking to myself personally, for better or worse, you know, I've been blessed with, I I haven't been cursed with that need to get super. "Quote unquote extreme." I mean, I like going steep and fast, and um, there's definitely plenty of risk involved. But I, you know, my line is somewhere well within the realm of what I would consider, you know, super extreme or super risky. I don't personally put myself way out on the line. That being said, of course, you know, when you're talking about snow and mountains and basically these living entities, anything can happen. So there is, a, you know, there is a considerable amount of risk just in general, even if you're on a, you know, medium level backcountry terrain Um, so personally you know i just i don't feel like i really put myself out there um, as far as that high high level of risk and you know it's just it's just something i've decided that that's you know i don't necessarily need that to feel complete so what are some of your like
0: your like red flags or do you have any like hard rules in the backcountry in terms of snowpack or like like calls that you make
1: you know, I'd love to give you some whole spiel about how you know cold and calculated and everything I am. Honestly, I mean, again, I don't personally, I'm not personally attracted to that super high end risky terrain because it just doesn't make me feel good. Um, and then, you know, again, we're blessed with a real, real stable snowpack here in the Whistler area, which is where I spend most of my time. Um, so avalanche danger isn't as big a factor as it can be elsewhere um and then you know without sounding you know cheesy or whatever else at the end of the day you just go with your gut you know i i've spent so much time out in the backcountry and um, i've spent so much time in the mountains that i would like to think in an idealized you know version of what's going on out there that you know i just listen to my gut and follow that and so far that hasn't led me astray i've personally been involved in maybe one or two teeny tiny super minor accidents i haven't even really ever been caught in any sort of slide or anything like that um i i personally just don't put myself in situations that i feel there's even any sort of real quote-unquote risk acknowledging that there's always risk in the backcountry even and i mean this might i don't know if this will come off the wrong way but i don't own an avalanche backpack because i've always personally felt that like if I had the backpack, then that would inevitably make me take bigger risks. Yeah. Or if I don't have the backpack, I'm just not going to put myself in those situations. Now, I mean, you can, you know, you can make your own judgment calls on that, and maybe I'll buy a backpack one of these days. But because they're amazing tools, so I'm not knocking anybody who wears a backpack. Anybody who feels they should wear an airbag should wear an airbag. But again, I, I kind of, I just set the framework up to not put myself in those situations, um, and then just follow my gut. let me just like ask further
0: on that that gut thing because i don't think that's cheesy at all i think (laughs) uh i think it's like very um like underrated just how much like wisdom there is in that that gut check like um or, or what's going on like when you listen to your gut exactly what's going into that that call on whether or not it's good like um like let's say you're, um, you're like eyeing up a line. It's, like, I, I don't really uh, have enough experience like skiing to, to be in these situations. But like in mountain biking, wh- one thing I do if I'm like eyeing up like a, a tricky feature is um, is like as I'm lining it up, I um, as I'm approaching I, I I won't make a decision until the, the last minute and if even the slightest thing is off I'll, I'll like I'll pull out and then um I, I'll sometimes run in a couple of times and if it if I have to think about it uh, a third time this mandatory it's like it's in no way and um I can't quite put a word to what what that is but I I like consider my gut being like telling me if 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 I'm ready to take that on, because I I know that's at the edge of my ability. And so only the gut knows if you're in a state to actually like challenge that, you know? Yeah.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. It makes a ton of sense. But I mean it's also funny because these are such interesting topics and I could tell stuff that both me and you are really attracted to, but at the same time, I mean we were talking about things that are operating on a completely Subconscious, unconscious, non-mental state. So it's 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 hard stuff to talk about yeah. because that's what's so rad about it is that, um, is that it's something happening on this you know deeper, deeper level. I mean, I, you know, I don't have anything super deep and meaningful to say about it other than I trust my gut. Uh-huh. You know, I try. You know, you want to say my gut, my heart, my whatever. I, I trust it deeply, um, and that goes both ways. That goes about pulling away from something. And that also goes for pushing the limits of something sometimes. Sometimes things feel right and, you know, and you decide you're willing to accept the risk of any given feature or situation or line or whatever else you're putting, your, putting yourself in, whether that be in the mountains or otherwise. All I can really say is that, you know, it's, I guess it takes practice and, and a deep faith in yourself and I mean, listen, you, you don't want to tell some 12-year-old to go with your gut, right? But it's like, yeah. it takes years of practice and years of being in that environment and making the different decisions. And for better or worse, seeing things go right and seeing things go wrong, whether that's to yourself or other people around you. And and then just, you know, getting comfortable with, with trusting yourself. And and yeah, it's a, it's a really special thing. It's... Um, really quite cool i mean at the end of the day i mean we're talking about when you're talking about things where your life is literally on the line you know i would like to think for myself and everybody who i'm surrounding myself with you always err to the side of caution a little bit i mean you're not gonna you know if if you're on the if you're on the fence about something and you just really want to do it but you're still on the fence about it and i'm saying something really quite crazy whether again whether that's you know a certain feature a line or whatever else i mean you probably shouldn't do it you Mm -hmm. know but if, you, but if something's on the edge and you know that it's risky, but you feel that it's, it's there and you're willing to accept the consequences, that's the other big part about it, right? You're willing to accept the consequences. It's not trusting your gut isn't knowing that it's all going to go right. Trusting your gut is being willing to accept the consequences of things if they don't go right, um, whether that ends up in a you know, critical failure or not. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what are the, some
0: of the observations you've made of like, of some of the athletes that you've filmed and worked with in the past and how they weigh up decisions around risk, manage fear? Or...
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, especially like more recently as I've gotten to spend more and more time in kind of the area of uh, big mountain riding, which is something that's always really appealed to me. Both personally, in my writing, and then in my, um, you know, career-wise, you know, I've been I've been really lucky to both be friends with, but friends and colleagues, uh, working with some of the most you know amazing, incredible, talented, writers around, especially around here. And I mean, the things these guys and gals are doing, I mean, are completely mind-boggling. I mean, I and I'd love to say, you know, I can't real, I can't speak, I can't. I can't tell you what anybody else is thinking. What I can tell you is that I trust the writers that I work with. I'm scared on a daily basis for these guys, and and I often question if I'm doing the right thing by having a camera pointed at them. So, what I'll say to that is that you know I've, I consciously only go and in, into this big mountain amphitheater of writing with people. Who I trust their judgment. I trust that they're always gonna follow their gut. I trust that they've put the work in and have the experience necessary to make these decisions. And I also, most importantly for me, is that I trust that they're not doing it for the camera, because that's a huge thing that weighs on me. And, um, you know, God forbid, you know, somebody injures themselves or worse. While writing one of these lines, um, you know, if I thought that they were just doing it because, you know, I don't, so you know, because I was there with the camera, I mean, that's something I don't know how I would live with that. Um, so that, you know, so that's something that's really important to me. And I mean, and that's kind of the joke with, or it's not a joke. I mean, I don't know. That's kind of the ridiculous thing about this group, like the Pemby group and people like Joel and Taylor and especially Joe Lax and Chris Ankeny and Delaney. These guys are out there like doing some of the most gnarly skiing and snowboarding in the world. And like often without a camera on them, which I, you know, which I have nothing but the highest respect. But I'm like, so for my perspective, I'm just like, I got to be out there documenting this, you know, as a, as just a fan of theirs. But, um, but yeah, that, that's really important to me. And um, and I do really trust them and, um, and it's nice to know that they're thinking about these things on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. It is interesting how, um, like putting a,
0: yeah, a, a camera in, in front of something does like completely change the setting. I, I think about like my first mountain bike race, how, um, I was just completely, um, like just not, um, not in my zone like the adrenaline and just completely thrown off my judgment around like pace and like g's into corners and stuff um yeah i guess you, you kind of want to have like a a, a a true professional before you even put on put a camera to them in those situations right
1: oh yeah without a doubt it's just i mean it's really the only way that it can happen i mean listen at the end of the day i mean especially depending on the situation of the project Sure the camera's often driving the action. But yeah, but the, these these guys and gals are out there they're not doing it for the camera. Obviously everybody enjoys capturing an amazing line and being able to share that and um, and it's you know, it's it's a motivator, but but these are you know, they're gonna be out there doing that no matter what. And that's actually it's much more a factor in you know the big mountain world I spent a large part of my career more in the you know jumps and booters and kind of freestyle arena and you know the camera drives things a lot more there for sure but the 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 risks and consequences are a lot lower um yeah
0: so that's resilience
1: like touching on all
0: those uh uh those principles around Around risk and resilience, and, and how it applies to, to other areas. I'm curious. Um, in your your film, The Radicals, it's been out probably six
1: months now, is it? No, that's uh, cute. Uh, no, is the, the radical. No, no, sorry. I, it's just Cute. Whatever. No. So actually, The Radicals came out in 2018. Ah. So it's been out three years. So we premiered The Radicals in September 2018, and we did a whole festival run. And a ton of screenings, probably actually well over 100 screenings all over the world. Big ones, small ones, all the rest. And then the story there was we got an offer from, uh, from a distributor who promised us the moon and they were going to you know, get the movie on Netflix and all the rest. So we signed this deal with the distributor, um, actually out of Europe. But anyways, one thing, you know, nothing really happened. So it kind of sat, it kind of lulled there for, For a couple years and then i was like sitting around really bummed about the thing and i'm like i just want to put it on youtube like should i break the contract and this and that and i was like asking somebody for their advice and they were like why don't you just like email them and ask them for your movie back and i was like oh okay so i just like emailed this company and it turned out they had actually felt terrible because they it just wasn't it just they're more like a pure action sport film company so like dude we feel so terrible we just didn't really work with our clients so they like yeah so they gave us the film back and then so, so yeah so then about six months ago um, was it six months ago like almost no more like a year oh no yeah it was about six months ago it was on uh, it was on um, Earth Day or whatever which I think is April so yeah we did the re-release where we put it on YouTube and released it for free and, um, and then so yeah, so it kind of gave it a bit of a second life, um, so that's been really quite special. So yeah, mm-hmm. that was cool that story that you did and, and that's kind of
0: exploring the, the, the tell us a little bit more, more about it.
1: Yeah, so The Radicals was an incredible project, um, it was the first opportunity I had to kind of spearhead a quote-unquote larger film, I mean in the world of film it was still teeny-tiny, um, but I was—I I got a—I de- got a sizable grant through a program called Tell a Story Hive that we were able to supplement with a little bit of sponsorship money and some other government matching stuff, and we put together enough of a budget that um, I was able to work on this film. I was able to produce and work on the film full time for the year, year and a bit that it took to make it, and I, I partnered up with Tamo Campos, who's an incredible snowboarder and activist, um, who's been deeply immersed in the world of. Um, Frontline activism, mostly working with amazing indigenous communities all around BC and supporting um, some of their struggles all around the province for many years. And the founder of an amazing group called Beyond Boarding, who seeks to kind of uh, bridge these two worlds of outdoor adventure and activism. And so, me and Tamo, again, have been kind of circling each other for a couple of years, work, looking for opportunities to work together. I was able to access this grant money, or we got this grant and so we were off to the races and i originally i originally had structured the project around it was all going to be about you know four snowboarders who are these you know activists and you know how special these four snowboarders were and they were all friends and athletes who had been lucky enough to uh, meet and befriend over the years tamo megan uh mary france um, But then when I pitched to Tammo, he was super great. And he's just so wise, wise beyond his years, that's for sure. And he said to me, he's, Brian, I love it. He goes, I'm all aboard. He goes, but this, he goes, but I refuse to make the film that you're pitching me. He goes, we'll do the thing, but it's not about the athletes. We're going to use the athletes to share and lift up the stories of the indigenous communities, which of course, uh, I mean, of course I said yes to, but of course that just made it such a deeper and more rich and meaningful project and um and yeah and, and we are off the races so so the radicals in the end um, is about these four snowboarders and surfers who are social and environmental activists and we but we use their stories uh to shine a lens on these four amazing indigenous communities around british columbia who are fighting their own um environmental fights um, so yeah so it was an amazing project and Again, just so grateful to TAMO and everybody, uh, the whole team, um, and we were able to create this this piece of film that seems to resonate with people and seems to bridge a bit of that. I always laughed we were gonna like trick the snowboarders into caring about environmental environmentalism and trick the environmentalists into caring about snowboarding, and you know we we hit we hit a we seem to have hit a sweet spot where the message resonated with people and film festivals and all the rest and it's so beautiful to see it continue to to get out there in the world and you know even just here you just came across it recently or i often you know get emails from teachers oh i just showed it to my students or um, somebody asking if they can do a screening or it's really quite beautiful
0: cool cool yeah it's um i i think the, the outdoors is uh, or, or sports like skiing and snowboarding are, are, are often a good way to introduce people to, to these issues and you, you look at like protect our winters will be on boarding it's like as ways that that that, that happen and um, yeah your film does the same really in that in that way yeah.
1: listen spending time you know if if you do spend time or if you're so lucky to spend time in these amazing places that we get to spend time in i mean especially you know if you're so lucky as i have been and blessed to spend time in these you know the deep back country and watching these sunsets from the top of mountains and you know achieving these peak experiences and peak states with your friends and all the rest i mean you inevitably can't not you know whatever terminology you want to use if you want to call it become an environmentalist but you just can't not care deeply about the environment mm. and the earth and mm. the, this magical thing that you know we just absolutely have to protect i mean it's just it's just it's just crazy to think it's it's not, again it's not some conscious it's not something that becomes a conscious effort or anything it's just something that just happens i mean it just has to uh, I can't imagine anybody standing on top of a mountain and seeing a sunset and not being deeply, deeply affected yeah. by it. I mean, it's it's really quite the most amazing thing in the world. But that being said, digging more into um, the experience of working on the radicals and some of the messaging that came out both in the film, but then also you know, has affected and shaped me, who I am, and the way I think about things. Um, So it's actually, and having the opportunity and being so blessed to work closely with Indigenous communities and share the messaging of some of these amazing, incredible Indigenous people, Indigenous communities. Um, So, you know, so it's actually... It's the it's, a, it's the closing line of the film, and it's something that Megan O'Brien, an amazing, really good friend of mine, who's an Indigenous snowboarder and um, incredible textile weaver, um, she closes the film out with this incredible quote, which I knew. I almost I hesitate to admit this, but I almost I, I always knew that it was it was deep and was worth ending the film, but it actually, it was in some other like personal work that I'd been doing about six or 12 months later that really all kind of clicked for me. And it was funny because I sent her a text, I'm like, oh my God, I really get what you mean now. But so she, she helps share this um, idea that, you know, the mountains and these incredible places that we get to spend time on you know, it was, sorry, sorry, so i just back up a second. So she shares this idea that really puts into perspective about how a lot of, you know, I would never try to speak for um, the Indigenous community, but the way she has expressed it to me or the way I've understood it is, so she's expressing how the Indigenous worldview differs for, from, say, the colonial or modern worldview. So then the way she expresses it is, you know, these incredible places that we get to spend time in and do these, you know, silly activities of sliding down mountains on the pieces of wood or whatever, when you start framing it as, you know, these mountains and these places really aren't just some inanimate object here for our pleasure, um, which I think especially when we're younger, you know, we often, we don't even give a second thought to the mountain. What is the mountain? It's all about us and our friends and what we're doing. When you start thinking about we'll say the mountain specifically as these almost living, breathing entities full of energy, you know, vibrating energy that are as much a being as humans or plants or animals or anything else when you really stop thinking about them as just these platforms of personal achievement. But these entities that were basically really just incredibly blessed to be able to interact with spend time with and communicate with really on this you know subconscious level i mean when you start thinking about it in that sense again you just can't be not deeply affected by it and it's just something i'm so grateful for and again when you start thinking about it in that way i mean how could you not want to protect them how could you throw a piece of garbage on the ground or whatever else i mean it's 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 mind-boggling. Again, I mean that's a, you know, it's, it's just a it's just a wild thing. So so that for me was my biggest personal transformation piece out of that project. And what I hope is what people take away from that project is just that kind of whole shift in mindset. Mm. It's um it's really quite something so beautiful, and that I'm sure I haven't done any justice to. So I'm sorry, Megan, but. Uh, Love you so much for, you know, sharing that with the um, the viewers, and it's been again an honor to, hopefully, sh- uh, share some of that idea with people.
0: No, I think you described it well. for For me, I, I've actually started doing something similar in that, like, in in recognizing the peak state that you can can often reach, like in the mountains. Um, I've started like substituting in that with a, imagining that like I'm, I'm tapping in to the spirit of this mountain and like that like it, it, that this is a living breathing thing and as soon as you do that it's so much richer like that connection is so much deeper
1: yeah it's 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 absolutely amazing and definitely without a doubt the biggest gift i've ever been given in my whole life far beyond almost anything else i can even imagine i mean this idea of Peak states and flow states and all that. I, we were talking about this earlier. There's this amazing quote that I just love that I just recently heard on another podcast from Jerry Lopez, who's a, um, an elder of the surf world and a really wise guy. And he talks about this idea of how these activities we do, specifically around like Big Mountain, something like Big Mountain snowboarding or surfing, um, these activities we get to do that combine spending time in these magical places with physical feats and all the rest, they really are this cheat code or life hack or whatever there really are this cheat code you know gift straight into these incredible flow state peak experiences that a lot of people spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort trying to achieve whether that's you know sitting in a 10-day vipassana or traveling to the top of a himalayan peak which are all super valid activities and things that i'm attracted to but um but what a gift it is that we've been given this activity that allows us to achieve that, and and yeah, when you start um, when you start looking at it in that context, and then as you start kind of connecting these dots, putting all these different pieces together, it's um, it's something quite incredible.
0: Yeah, it's probably a good good place to. To wrap it up and we've talked about we've talked about a lot we've talked about the the, the risk and reward from the mountains mm. how it forces you to to contemplate and come to terms with your own mortality and and how we, it, it forces us and and empowers us to like see the connection with nature and and, and experience those big states
1: yeah yeah this has been great <laughs> um yeah, this has been really great. Uh, I can't remember a thing I said in the last hour. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, in many ways, I mean, I could, I could talk about this stuff all day long. I mean, I don't know, not that you asked me for a closing uh, statement, but, um, but I'll give you one. And again, I'll just say, you know, I'm just, you know, especially as I get older and I go, through this you know I'm, I'm 40 41 years old and you know you inevitably start you know asking some of the deeper questions in life and um around meaning and you know conscious and all the rest but we'll say around you know the meaning of life and how to li- how to live a truly meaningful life i mean you start really you know reading and researching and learning all these things again i just I'm so overwhelmingly grateful that I've been given that I've been given this gift of this outdoor lifestyle, of this backcountry snowboarding lifestyle. Um, it's really something quite special and something I really I don't know what I did to deserve, but I'll you know I'll try every day of the rest of my life to to honor it and to try to share, some of that beauty and wonder with the world, and that's kind of all I'm really trying to do with my storytelling, with my career stuff, is just try to share some of that messaging and hopefully impart, impart some of that wonder out into the world. It's um, it's just freaking awesome. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, bro, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate
1: it. Yeah, buddy, really appreciate it, Tim. This has been great, and uh, really great to meet you. And um, yeah, stoked on a new friendship.
0: Hope you enjoyed that episode. Brian is a sweet, sweet dude. We're definitely going to head out to the Cut Block in Mount Mulligan and Squamish sometime soon. It's mid-October as I record this. Weather's very rainy, which means that a little bit more snow is slowly dusting that mountain every single day. Anyway, you can find a little bit more of Brian uh, at ResilienceTheFilm.com. I've thrown that in uh, the notes here as well as a link to brian's instagram if you want to uh, follow him there uh, i've thrown a link to my instagram there as well uh, and finally if you enjoyed this please hit the subscribe button on whatever app you're using as well as provide a rating uh, they say that on every podcast i figured there's something i should say too